have you here with a fabulous looking day around the province and a very nice week continues as we move in already on mid-November. You know, when you think of Rob Vanstone, now the artist in residence, because he crafts words so beautifully, a writer in residence, senior correspondent, Saskatchewan Rough Riders, career in sports journalism, much published author, uh, all the books he's written, there was that great one called A Hundred Things Rough Rider Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. That was a really good book. But in terms of Saskatchewan Rough Riders and all things CFL, Van Stone is the go-to guy. So why is he writing about hockey? Brand new book called Brave Face, Wild Tales of Hockey Goaltenders in the Era Before Masks. I love this book. Rob oh, Van Stone, you, good to have you here, man. A pleasure, and uh, congrats on 25 years and uh, another week and a half to go. Uh, <laughs> an amazing run. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend. Uh, I've been watching people like you for some inspiration here. Yes, it's. Uh, I'm not sure if I can provide much inspiration the way I'm going lately, but I'll do my best. So. <laughs> I, I, I'm a little bit older than you, but I, I played goal. And, of course, in those days, and this was just a kid, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, you'd have the gear... And, of course, they had a big old cardboard box full of these fiberglass masks that were worn by different hockey players. You didn't have your own mask. You'd just reach in and put it on. But I <laughs> I do remember, of course, Gump Worsley, uh, the history of Jacques Plante and the first mask. What possessed you to go down this road? I've always been fascinated by it, John. I, my, my hockey awakening was in the 1971, and our Hockey Night in Canada game was on. And I remember the Boston Bruins were playing the Vancouver Canucks, and they zoomed in on the Boston goalie, Jerry Cheevers. And he used to paint stitches on his mask. (laughs) Right. Every time he got hit in the face, he would paint stitches where the stitches would have been had he not been wearing the mask. And I was fascinated by this goalie and this mask and by goalie, so I was really taken by that. And that was my introduction to hockey at seven years of age. And then not long after that, they showed a Minnesota North Stars game, and you mentioned Gump Worsley. And there was Gump Worsley. It's like, he isn't wearing a mask. Why isn't he wearing a mask? And I was just fascinated by it. And what was kind of strange is that in the time, from the time I started following hockey in 71, even though maskless goalies were kind of being phased out, the number of maskless goalies in the NHL increased. At the time I started following hockey, there were two. There was Gump Worsley and Joe Daly. Well, then Andy Brown gets called up from the minors. And he makes it by the Detroit Red Wings, and he makes it three maskless goalies. I was just intrigued by it as a kid. So when the pandemic came, and suddenly there's no sports to write about, and our editors at the Leader Post, Star Phoenix, encouraged Heather Pearson, Tim Switzer, they encouraged us. They said, if there's there's a bucket list thing you've ever wanted to write about, now is the time, right? And and I suggested a big takeout on maskless goalies, and it was began as a newspaper project. And very early in the project, it just I just fell in love with it. I thought there's a larger story to tell here. So I contacted Triumph Books, with whom I'd wor- worked on the book you referenced, and pitched it to them, and they were enthusiastic. And here I am as a full-time employee of a football team writing about basketball goalies. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Fatstone and Regina. Okay, this would be wonderful. So you interview Jerry Cheevers, Bernie Perrant, Glenn Hall, Ken Dryden, the relatives of the great Johnny Bauer, Terry Sawchuck. That must have been a walk down memory lane. It was amazing, you know, to be that close to legends. You know, I had two conversations with Glenn Hall. It was just awesome to talk to. You know, talking to Terry Sawchuck's son, I mean, who would have imagined 
having that opportunity, or Johnny Bauer's grandson, you know, John Bauer the third. Just having those opportunities. I talked to Ken Dryden and his brother Dave, who sadly passed away not too long ago. And, and Dave was a real innovator of the mask that we see now, called the cage combination. And Dave used to design his own goalie masks. And and Dave was so amazing to work with. Even even proofread the book for me. And uh, both Drydens are just were just fabulous to talk to. And and not only that, you know, some of the bigger names. Were, it was really cool, but. Uh, to talk to some of the goalies I'd never heard of before, some goalies who maybe had a cup of coffee in the National Hockey League, but played most of their careers in the minors, or you know, didn't even get that far. You know, Gay Cooley is worth a book on his own. This this ten you know, decade long career in the minor leagues and didn't wear a mask for most of the time. And the stories he told, he's just the things he did. It's a great career that I think deserved a lot of a lot more attention than it was. It got just a fabulous guy. Gay Cooley was absolutely hilarious to talk to. Russ Gillow, Ian Young, Bob Perro. Uh, there's just so many goalies that I, I love telling stories about that I didn't know anything about before I started this project. It is a delightful book called Brave Face, subtitled Wild Tales of Hockey Goaltenders in the Era Before Masks. Rob Van Stone? Yes, that Rob Van Stone, because I have to make that point because you're so, so so closely tied with football on this maskless issue now andy brown i had never heard of uh you tried to get a hold of him he taught his dog how to answer the phone <laughs> i love that thank you for including the dog trivia and uh there was a goalie named wayne rutledge who was actually the last goalie uh, in, in hockey history to intentionally not wear a mask but the houston arrows in in 1978 and Wayne's dog uh, once ate a uh, string of Christmas lights while they were still plugged in. So I've got two great dog stories in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andy Brown was—he didn't want to talk about it. He'd done, you know, he'd done a lot of stuff on on being a maskless goalie. He just—he said that's behind me. The the good part was that so much of his story had been documented. He talked about it so often. He was just a really—he was very pleasant about it. He was such a great character with so much behind him. He was. He was the last maskless goalie in, in the history of, uh, of uh, the National Hockey League he, for the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins. He, he did that. He was maskless in, on uh, April seventh, nineteen seventy four. The next day, Henry Aaron broke Babe Ruth's home run record, also in Atlanta. So <laughs> history was made two two days in a row in Atlanta, and then and then in nineteen seventy six, he was the last uh, uh, maskless goalie. Um, Pretty much in, in hockey history, save for that little blip of time when Wayne Rutledge uh, entered the game late in the third period for the Houston Arrows in 1978. But Andy Brown made two relief appearances as a maskless goalie in November of 76 and was injured and never played again. And the oddity is Michelle Dion, the starting goalie for the Indianapolis Racers, started both those games. He was wearing a mask and got hurt in both games, and then Andy Brown came in and replaced him without a mask. Like, you'd think it'd be the other way around. The maskless <laughs> guy gets hurt, and then the other guy comes in, right? <laughs> this is great stuff. Rob Vanstone. <laughs> now, you tell the story, because most of us, I think, grew up understanding Jacques Plante, the great goalie, and the evolution of kind of that first mask. You tell that in great detail and bring a lot to it. Is Jacques Plante, in terms of modern hockey history, the father of the mask? He was. I mean, people had dabbled in it. You know, Clint Benedict with the Montreal Maroons in the early 1930s had worn a mask after he got dinged. But 
quickly discarded it. And there's episodes even before Clint Benedict of players wearing it. There was a, a goalie in the Olympics in like the '36, I think, wearing a mask mainly to protect his glasses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in um, there were goalies before Jacques Plante on November 1st, '59, who would wear a mask in practice. It was almost like a welder shield. It was called the Lorch because the, the I think the person who designed it was somebody by the name of Herbert Lorch. So they would wear it in practice to kind of protect themselves there. Because one of the things I found out found really interesting is the goalies felt that practice was more dangerous in games because you get you're practicing more often than you're playing in some cases, and right. and and you might we might face more shots. So they would quite routinely. Johnny Bauer, Terry Sawchuk, Jacques Plante, they would routinely wear this lorch in practice. But in terms of a game, it was Jacques Plante, November 1st, 1959, at Madison Square Garden, who really wore the mask and made it stick. And uh, um, it helped that the, he was, the Canadians were on, they were just starting an unbeaten streak when Jacques Plante got dinged by Andy Bathgate and refused to re-enter the game without a mask. It helped that after that, the Canadians kept playing well. They ended up winning their fifth straight Stanley Cup. And, you know, if, if, if a goalie had pioneered a mask and then proceeds to have a 9.08 goals against average, it might have taken longer for the mask to become a, a thing. But because it was Jacques Plante and he was so proficient, it just dispelled a lot of the myths about you can't see the puck at your feet, you can't play as well, you're scared, etc. It was Jacques Plante, and, and he continued to be Jacques Plante once he put on that hideous-looking mask. Yeah, I do remember that was a hideous looking thing. Uh, the book is Brave Face, Wild Tales of Hockey Goaltenders in the Era Before Masks, Rob Vanstone's latest book, and it's a delightful read. I assume available in better bookstores everywhere. Are you doing any kind of signings or kickoff events? Not as of yet. Um, I haven't. Uh, I'll certainly pass along some uh, information if I get some, but. So far, I just uh, <laughs> just it's, it's it's available on Amazon. It's available to go pretty much any books bookseller. It uh, it would be there, and I hope uh, I hope people enjoy it. It's it's been a really cool thing that I that I never imagined having the opportunity to do. And scratching that itch after fifty plus years, when you never think it's going to happen, that was just an absolute treat that I never imagined. Well, it is a beautiful book, too. And, of course, we're now officially in that window with Remembrance Day behind us. If people are looking for certain gifts for a certain event soon to come, I think a lot of fans are going to be snapping this one up, Rob. Always great having you by, my friend. And uh, I I don't know if we'll talk again in the next, uh, what, seven shows. I hope we will. (laughs) (laughs) Keep in touch and uh, don't be a stranger. Yeah, vice versa, John. Thank you so much for all your time over the years. And, uh, I hope your handicap is whittled down considerably uh, next spring. That will be the project. (laughs) (laughs) Rob Vanstone in Regina, one of many projects will be handicap management. He is one of my very favorite people, and you've gathered that over the years. The first day, first week this show debuted, didn't take us long to be chatting sports with Vanstone. And uh, over the 25 years, I cannot remember. And this was long before we had a regular incredible sports show like the Green Zone. And, of course, Rob Van Stone has been a valued cast member over the years of our Green Zone as well. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.
for joining us here today. Gosh, time flies. Okay, this is a story I'm going to roll over until tomorrow. It's a very funny piece on 20 words in the English language introduced, created by cartoons, and other ones popularized. I mean, a good example is a cartoon strip called The Newlyweds and Their Baby back in 1904. People who were married would be newly wed, but nobody ever ever actually used the pronoun newlyweds until the cartoon of that same name. That's just one, though, of many. So uh, we'll save that tomorrow and have a little fun with it. So Pierre Polyev pulling no punches, and this is a detailed report from Global News and an outstanding report at that. So Global uh, checked in with a BC lawyer named Ramin Juban, who has 700 names. And this comes from people in Canada being persecuted and intimidated by the state of Iran, also different Americans who feel pressured by the Iranian state. 700 names right now of Iranian officials who either have temporary residence, permanent residence, or Canadian citizenship. 700 people affiliated with the regime of the Ayatollahs in Iran. And this emerged uh, in part through uh, a U.S.-based journalist, human rights activist, Mashi Alanjad, uh, outspoken critic, who she still moves from safe house to safe house uh, in the U.S., and she was told that her life is in danger and, quote, potentially even more so if she moved to Canada. The FBI told me, quote, the same group trying to kidnap me on U.S. soil are the same group from the Revolutionary Guards in Iran who were trying to harass, kidnap, and kill people in Canada. So Global comes out with this bombshell report, and good on them. So Pierre Polyev is in Vancouver yesterday. Global News asks him uh, what should happen. You know, several hundred uh, Iranian regime insiders living in Canada. Quote, To think we might have terrorist-linked Iranian regime thugs operating with impunity, spending stolen money intimidating Canadian Jews and Iranians, is appalling. The report shocking, kick them out. I, I don't think any nuance is required there. Have a great rest of this day. Back here tomorrow morning, 836. I'll see you then on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM.